0: I'm Brian Hu I'm Ada Singh And welcome to Saturday School
1: When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons You're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history Hey everyone, welcome back to Saturday School. This is our second season. We're calling it our spring semester. For those of you who are returning students, you'll know that our first semester covered Asian American comedy. This season is gonna be about Asian Americans in love.
0: So just as we teased in the last episode of last season, we wanted to do what we did with comedy, which was to showcase a genre that Asian Americans aren't really known for. We want to do so with another genre and What better genre than the romance? And I think we came up with a a list that, I don't know, was pretty impressive and pretty romantic. What we
1: really wanted to do was not only find movies that had Asian-American romance, because most movies have some sort of romance, but we wanted to find the ones that we really rooted for or really made an impact on us. Looking back, there weren't that many examples of Asian-Americans in love that really, really stuck out to us.
0: Well, I think partly it's because they weren't that romantic. How many movies gave you that feeling of, like, you feel in your gut that these people are in love and it makes you smile? When you think about it that way, there aren't that many.
1: Let's go outside of Asian America. It's kind of easy to list off a lot of, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, which even if you haven't seen The Notebook, you kind of can't deny that there was a chemistry so strong on screen when, like, decades later, the internet still roots for them to be together
0: just visually the image of them together in an animated gif form becomes shorthand for what love means
1: and there's tons of examples in asian film whether it's Shah Rukh Khan and everybody he's with or like everybody in Wong Kar Wai movies
0: but like when do asian americans get to be part of that sense of all is not right in the world unless these two people are together that said i just want to give you some credit here our listeners should know that you actually created a google doc a spreadsheet of like every single Asian American romance you could remember from television, film, <laughs> independent, mainstream.
1: Yeah, cause I wanted to make sure we had an idea of what is out there, whether we've seen it or not. But when I started making a list, it was kind of intense, but it wasn't that hard because there just haven't been that many Asian American actors in Hollywood that had either leading roles or roles that were developed enough to even have a love interest. And really most of them, most of them are in TV.
0: On TV, if you're not the main lead, but you're like the second, third, or fourth lead, you still get a developed romance at some point in the series. So you were coming up with examples from Ally McBeal and the Gilmore Girls. And more recently, I think Master of None is a great one, where people don't talk enough about it being a really sweet romance, but that's, that's kind of what I find most memorable about it.
1: On my Crazy Excel spreadsheet, I bolded the ones that were Asian-American pairings, whether it's like an Asian-American woman with an Asian-American man or like gay relationships where both of them were Asian-American and it was kind of a pitiful list. (laughs) (laughs) And really that's because still how often do you have TV shows or movies where there's more than one Asian-American there to even have romances with each other? That's another master of none joke, right?
0: Yeah, statistically, it's just very unlikely. (laughs)
1: Not that we're limiting it to Asian-American, Asian-American romance, but we just wanted to find films that kind of surprised us, and we hope that they surprise you.
0: For this season, we wanted to stick to the films, because that, that to us, I think it still remains a more interesting challenge.
1: So in the last episode of the last season, Brian teased that in our exploration of romance, there would definitely be some hotness.
0: Yes, sir. And
1: truthfully, when you first said that, I was like, really? How are we going to deliver on that? But I'm not worried about that anymore. <laughs> because the first film that we're starting out with is a film called The Crimson Kimono by Samuel Fuller. So we're just going to start off with hotness.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: you want to tell us a little bit about The Crimson Kimono?
0: All right, so for those who don't know, 1959. Sam Fuller is one of the, I think at this time, he wasn't really considered one of the great directors. He was just kind of making B films, thrillers, cop films, films about the underworld. Today, he's considered one of the great American directors of all time. And um, there was a singer named James Shigeta that uh, had never been in a movie before and got cast in the Crimson Kimono as a cop. He and his partner, Charlie, are trying to solve this murder. I do not believe this, Joe, but... One day I get a call from a girl asking me up to her apartment. Sugar Torch, the stripper. It's me, Hidaka, doing an act with Sugar Torch.
1: There's not gonna be any act. She didn't replace me with another guy, did she?
0: Somebody shot her dead. Along the way, Charlie meets a woman named Christine, who turns out actually really loves the James Shakeda character. And it becomes this love triangle. So, I don't know how you first watched this movie, this was at the San Francisco International Asian American Film Festival back in the day, 2006. They were doing a James Shigeta retrospective. They often do retrospectives on old subject matter. So I just thought this was going to be a gem from the archives. Little did I know that James Shigeta was going to pierce from my eyes to my soul. This is true, I can confirm this. There's something so fantastic. And like fantastic in not just like the amazing way, but fantastic in the kind of magical sense that in 1959, somebody like him existed. The way he talks is just like anybody else from the 1950s, the way he dresses.
1: I think there's somebody like Bruce Lee, right? Where you look at him and he's like a huge star and everybody knows who he is. But people don't talk about James Shigeta as much.
0: Well, I think it's also because Bruce Lee represented this shirtless, animalistic version of masculinity. Whereas James Shigeta sang like torch songs and like lounge music. So like this is like the crooner, like 1950s crooner, like a Frank Sinatra style of male hotness. Also, like he, his films just ha- haven't really stood the test of time. I mean, Crimson Kimono, as much as we love it and as much as it's sort of a cult hit, it's still pretty hard to find. And think about his other work. There's Flower Drum Song, which people don't really associate with him. He's in Die Hard briefly. And that's about it in terms of the classic films that he's in.
1: Yes. But I mean, regardless of why we don't talk about him that much, I think it was that element of surprise. I mean, this was back in 2006 when we watched it. I mean even now you don't see Asian American men in leading romantic roles that often.
0: And not feel forced at all. Like when he's on screen you just know of course you would fall for this guy.
1: He passed away maybe a few years ago and one of the obituaries was talking about his presence on screen and how there's just kind of a comfort that you don't see that often from Asian Americans. And this was his very first role, right? Because even like a John Cho now, that I don't, I want to describe his persona, whether it's how he is as an actor or what he's been allowed to play. I don't think he's often playing a character who's just so at comfort with himself and his hotness.
0: Maybe it's because, weirdly enough, James Shigeta existed in a time that we didn't really talk about Asian American representation in the same way. I think a lot of contemporary actors feel the weight of what they represent when they're on screen. I mean, I'm sure James Shigeta felt that to some extent, and the film is actually a lot about race. I'm not a lot about race, but race is present. But I think what you said was right. It's a certain effortlessness, maybe because he's not trained as an actor that he can just kind of be. And his most natural scene in the movie that immediately comes to mind every time this movie comes up is the scene where he's playing piano.
1: Yeah. So basically, the way the plot goes is that Charlie, the white guy is the one who falls for the girl first. And it's kind of interesting to compare the different meet-cutes that make up the love triangle, because when he flirts with her, it's all about like, hey, I like the way you look in that smock. Or like... (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that word doesn't fit those full lips of yours. You know, it's a very, like, (laughs) masculine...
0: It's almost like he's trying to woo her the way that he would shake down a witness.
1: (laughs) Whereas when she meets... James Shigeta's character and you see her kind of falling for him, he plays the piano for her.
0: Let's set this up visually. James Shigeta's in the foreground. He's playing a piano. We see him. He's facing the camera. As she's behind him, also facing the camera, he doesn't know that she's looking at him, but we see her watch him as he plays the piano.
1: And it's just like a few bars of this Japanese children's song. And she gets up and like the look in her eyes, it's like, that's all she needs.
0: (laughs) We also see that he's not really trying hard. He's not playing the song To woo her, it's just the natural radiation of his romantic self, and it works.
1: And actually, if you look at an old poster of the movie, have you seen this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's funny, because they sell it with this. The tagline is, yes, in capital letters, yes, comma, this is a beautiful American girl in the arms of a Japanese boy.
0: So scandalous.
1: (laughs) And then underneath it says, what was his strange appeal to American girls?
0: (laughs) we we'll also have to remember, like, in the context of 1959, a marriage between an Asian guy and a white woman would be illegal in, like, a dozen states. And in the publicity of the film, they were selling up the scandalousness of it. But in the film, that's never addressed. It just seems like, what barriers? Like, this, this is just the way these two souls ought to come together. And in fact... A lot of the scandal is actually in James Shigeta's own head, his character's own head. His own fear of being judged as a Japanese person.
1: Yeah, and his questioning only comes up when he's faced with this love that might be challenged in some way. Because most of the story, there's not a lot of overt racism going on in the movie. It's almost like this utopia where they're in little Tokyo and there's tons of Japanese Americans and Even like the white characters in the film are very comfortable with these Nisei festivals and they seem pretty knowledgeable about Japanese
0: culture. 1959, this is also like less than two decades after he would have been in an internment camp. And I I think that like for American society, there's this very willful need to forget that America has been racist against Japanese people. And also because at this time in the 1950s, Japan is practically a colony of the United States, or at least for a while it was. So I think they're really trying to force the issue that the Japanese are our friends. But I think the scandalous poster points to the fact that Americans might not have been ready for that anyway. So the utopia, I think, is functioning partly to create a romantic utopia, but also I think it's this cultural utopia, too, that kind of puts America off the hook for its questionable way of treating Japanese people's civil rights. But race is still there, just not really spoken. And I think that there's something really um, realistic about that. There's a part when Charlie, the the white partner, asks the white woman, did you say something to him to offend him? What do you mean?
1: Sometimes people drop a remark. Harmless one, you know.
0: No, I don't know.
1: Well, sometimes people forget.
0: A word slips. You mean a word about the Japanese? Is that what you mean, Charlie? So it's like at the tip of their tongue, they all know their capacity to be racist. So it's not like racism doesn't exist in this movie. Um, But they're all like, kind of biting their tongues and and dancing around race in a way that contemporary films, they're not willing to go there. They're not really willing to acknowledge that microaggression happens and that it can affect relationships. I think now it's either it's about race or it's not about race at all. And Crimson Kimona kind of is able to do both in a very realistic way.
1: Yeah, it's weird how much it kind of stands the test of time do you think?
0: <laughs> it absolutely does. And I think partly it's because Sam Fuller is such a great director that we're invested in the plot about this slain stripper in the streets. And we're also really invested in the romance. I mean, I think he just pulls off both in 80 minutes.
1: It can never work out, Chris. If he feels like that, what can I expect from you? Everything. Because I love you. So that's the first episode of our second season, and we hope you're as excited as we are to explore Asian Americans in love. Saturday School is a proud member of POTLA, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian, our logo is by Grace Talis Lee, our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A D A T S E N G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H U S B R I A N, and the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Next week, your assignment is to watch Spencer Nakasako's 1998 documentary, Kelly Loves Tony. Class dismissed.